This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. A bizarre story which uh, started to unravel, started to develop when we were on the air yesterday. And three people have been killed with a crossbow yesterday in Toronto. One man faces uh, three first-degree murder charges in connection to this. Uh, we're going to talk to Joe Warmington now from your Toronto Sun. He did a piece on this today. Good afternoon, Joe. How are you today? Uh, doing okay. Obviously, it's a very shocking case, but uh, hanging in there. How about you? You know, it, it's it, it's funny, Joe, because uh, every day we get up, we look at the news, and there's always, it seems, another shooting in Toronto, which I, I guess we've just come to the point now where that's the way it is, life in the big city, uh, sort of speak. But man, this is bizarre. What can you tell us about this crossbow shooting? Well, it, it's so true. And what, what happened here, I mean, obviously, we're going to have to find out more as we go, but it looks like this guy that's been charged with the three counts of first-degree murder was connected to his uh, family. There was some strife within it over his father dying or what have you uh, a year ago. Hmm. And, um, you know, I don't, I'm not clear, I don't know if you're clear or not, on whether the crossbow was used or the, you know, the bows or the bolts, hmm. uh, the arrows, that kind of thing. But right. nonetheless, it's a horrible situation. It sounds like his mother's one of the victims. Oh and perhaps my. other family members, and you know he was uh, a, a young man that was before the courts and before, and you know, obviously even more so, he was convicted of armed robberies and things like that. So this is a very horrific situation. And uh, a, a history of this sort of be uh, not this behavior, but obviously a history of run-in with the law. Yeah, violent ones. You know where you're doing robberies of banks and and the like, and so. You know, for me, the question is obviously you, you can't control every person, but, you know, there's mental health issues here. We need to know what, what they were all about and, you know, what, you know, I don't know. It's, it's just so, so upsetting. Uh, what was, do we know anything more about the connection with the suspicious package down at Queen's Key? I don't personally know. I'm sorry, but, uh, you know, it's, uh, there's a lot of speculation about it. You know, this was a very troubled individual for one we're hearing and it was it'd be interesting to see if there was any if he was on anybody's radar hmm. uh at this point it seems though that it was a family dispute and nothing uh more beyond that at this point yeah i mean it's it, i think there's a, quite a bit more behind it you know and i know what you're trying to say it's it's not like a terror an act of terror thing, something like that. Isn't it? Isn't it terrible how that's what we just think about? That's what we just yeah. think. The first thing is, oh, does this have anything to do with terrorism? But you know, it's so hard because we all do it. You, you put stuff inside of some sort of a box to kind of cover off where this is, and sometimes that doesn't work. And so I'm, I've got an open mind of where this is at. I don't know all the details yet, but um, I don't think it's something where you know, where you have uh, a terror thing or maybe others were in danger. But until I know what that suspicious uh, package was, I'm, I'm going to hold, uh, hold off on that. And that seems to be, uh, at least I think that's what made me think in that direction was, you, you know, the, the, the horrific murders, that's one thing. Uh, a domestic dispute, that's one thing. But when there's a, a, suspicious, a suspicious package at another location, that's when you start to question things. Yeah, and then the other thing that I wonder about is the whole crossbow part of it. You know, what exactly did happen and whether it was, you know, he, whether he allegedly shot this or whether it was the arrows, uh, you know, that kind of thing. And then, you know, I'd like to know um, what exactly, where did he get that and yeah. how did he get it? Uh, did he have it already? Did he go out and buy it yesterday? Things like that I'm interested in knowing. Uh, do we know how difficult it is to buy a crossbow? I've written about that today. You don't have to do anything. You just go down and buy it. That's what I thought. Cash. You don't need a license or anything. No. No ID, no background check. Just go in and buy it and walk out of the store with it. And if you look at them, if you go up to that great store, that Bass Pro Shop, yeah, um, there's a lot of them there hanging there. And they have scopes, and some of them look like they, you know, they've got that kind of war look you know, to them, mm. really sleek kind of oozy kind of looking other ones are camouflaged and from what i understand from talking to the hunters up there there are all sorts of people 
uh, from 50 yards, and it's like 50 pounds, and boom, you could put an arrow right through a deer or, yeah. you know, whatever. So if that's in the wrong hands and somebody's deciding to use it in the wrong way, then you can see the damage it could cause, and that's what's happened here, I think. Do you think this the, that will change? Do you think that there should be a regulation on these things? I don't know. I mean, I, you know, I wrote the column saying that I wonder if there will be people asking that question, and, of course, I've got a lot of hate mail people uh, coming after me. I didn't say that they should be regulated, but I did make the point that if you go buy a pack of cigarettes, uh, it's harder to get those. You know, if you go on the 407, they know more about you because of the thing. So I think that we're going to have to, there's, this is not the first one. I mean, there's been numerous cases of crossbows being used to, to murder people, usually inside of these family units. So I think we have to look at it, but I, I don't know whether regulation's uh, the answer. But maybe, maybe there could be a request of the stores to, you know, check your license at least, and maybe, maybe run a, a criminal background check or something just to see who you're selling it to. You know, I can understand that as soon as you mention, uh, you know, and the, the headline of your column is "Time to Examine Access to Crossbows." I can see as soon as you would pen something like this that 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 some may take this the wrong way and say, "Hey, blah blah blah, what are you doing?" But even look at the picture of this thing that you got in your column. I mean, we're not talking about a kid's bow and arrow here. I mean, this or is a bl- a th- or a blender or a knife. I've got all I mean, exactly. Well, what about my blender? What about my golf club? Well. You know, I'll tell you something. This is a pretty sophisticated. This is a pretty sophisticated weapon with a scope on it. And the thing is that the actual bolts, they have this sort of either star or flower-like kind of thing that'll go right through you and shred everything. You know, even worse than a gunshot. So, if you jab that into someone, it'll go right through into their heart and kill them. That's not the same as a blender yeah. or a golf club. <laughs> and so, you know, if, if this guy had had any of the things that people say that he could have had. You wouldn't have three dead bodies necessarily. You might have one, or you might have you have a fighting chance. But with this, it's so lethal you can't get it out. And uh, you know, I guess if they were to be able to put somebody right on the operating table within 20 seconds of going in, they'd have a chance. But even that, from what I understand, because it rips your arteries and everything else. So what I'm saying is that you know, obviously I don't want to ban them, and I'm certainly not against the hunters. Um, you know, that's that's a whole different issue, but. You just like to know, and you go to buy one, can you know anybody buy it? Maybe somebody could say, well, what are you going to use it for? Or, you know, and the other thing, too, is the training on it. Like, uh, we have a lot of rules about the handguns and things like that. Now, that's not to say this guy couldn't go out and borrow or get it at a garage sale or, or whatever. I think we need to keep an open mind, but I think we do have to look at it. Uh, and, you know, as you mentioned in this article, do you, you do have to be 18 years of age to purchase one of these, though, correct? Yes, I mean, you do. And it's the same with cigarettes, so check your ID yeah. for, for that. But, uh, you know, uh, I'd like to know when he got it and what his background is with it. And, uh, you know, that's a fair question to ask. And obviously, these things are not to be used within city limits as the same thing with anything you use to hunt. Uh, they're not supposed to be used or, or even in a city setting, really, unless they're being used for target practice in some, some sort of range of, of sort. Yeah, and the people that use them responsibly know that, and they're very, very careful about it. In fact, the people that are most concerned about this are those that, that have them, that call them different things that I've received today, Scott, are from those kinds of people saying that they don't want to have someone that's out of control or mentally ill or using it as a weapon. Hmm. Uh, so so I think at the end of the day, the people that are, the, the regular, you know, the good hunters that we all know, they're very responsible and they don't want to see people irresponsible. Joe Warmington has been with us. The column is time to examine access to crossbows. This, of course, after three people dead in a murder in Toronto yesterday, it looks like, at the hands of a crossbow. Uh, Joe, thanks very much for the time. Much appreciated, as always. Have a good weekend. It's not a very nice way to go into the weekend. I know. And you're going to be in my column tomorrow a little bit, and we're going to follow that up uh, on the other thing with the uh, scammers on the phone. Oh, great. Very, very good job on that, by the way. Oh, thanks very much. We look forward to that. So what's what's the column? It could be a little affected because of this this, uh, situation, so... Uh, but I'm going to get it in somehow. Yeah, that's perfect. So what what are you concentrating on in the column tomorrow? 
Well, I don't know. You know, so I sort of threw that out there because I was on with you. I'm not really 100 percent sure because this this is a, a kind of a strange news day. So mm-hmm. it yeah, could go good any point. direction. But good point. But I definitely, you know, I want people to hear what you did, and so I'm hoping to provide the link for people to hear it. And then, you know, all with a view, as you said in your note to me, to uh, alert people about these people, and that yeah. you don't have to play their game. And I think that that's what you did so well in your little hit there. Thanks, Joe. As always, much appreciated. And, of course, have yourself a great weekend. The column is time to examine access to crossbows. Joe Warmington from your Toronto Sun. Thank you, Joe. Much appreciated. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Three people killed with a crossbow yesterday in Toronto. A man faces uh, three first-degree murder charges. To talk more about all of this, uh, Christina Stevens is with us, senior reporter with Global News and on the line now. Good afternoon, Christina. How are you today? Oh, pretty good. Scott, we're uh, just here outside of the courthouse just after 35-year-old Brett Ryan made his very brief appearance. What can you tell us about this story so far? Give us a bit of an update here. Uh, well, the basics, uh, I'm sure a lot of people are aware of by this point. Uh, yesterday afternoon, uh, there were three murders with a crossbow, two men and one woman. Uh, all three victims died uh, at the scene. Police also linked it to a suspicious package that was found at a a tower on Queen's Key, and that was evacuated for a while. They have not updated on what the suspicious package was or what the link was, but now we have had the suspect appear in court. As I said, 35-year-old Brett Ryan, three counts of first-degree murder. Now, he appeared extremely calm uh, as he uh, stood there in court. It was brief. He was wearing a white jumpsuit, like a painter suit or a hazmat suit, that kind of thing, and uh, just nodded. Uh, he appeared calm but tired. Uh, did he seem mentally stable? I mean, it's hard to say. It is such a brief appearance. Yeah. Uh, like I said, he just walked in, but, you know, I've, I've seen these cases before where uh, the suspect looks more disheveled or more sort of out of sorts. As I said, he blinked a lot, He, but he looked around. He seemed very calm, very calm. Uh, does this appear to be a domestic dispute, a family issue? Honestly, at this point, it is too early to say. Police have not yet released uh, the names of the three victims, uh, we do know that somebody with the same last name owned the house, that kind of thing. At this point, I wouldn't want to jump to any conclusions until that's confirmed. Uh, is there anything more you can say about the weapon used? Uh, in fact, it was a crossbow. We understand from police that, yes, it was a crossbow. And, of course, uh, you know, pretty much anyone can buy one of those. And it's, it's extremely uh, unusual uh, to hear of something like this. And, again, as, as yet there's no motive, so it's not really clear you know, why or how this came about. It certainly is a, a puzzling one. Um, you know, and just really horrible for the neighborhood. We talked to one uh, neighbor who, who called 911 after a man, you know, covered in blood, knocked on his door saying, you've got to help me, you've got to help me. And he basically said, well, you know, it, he called 911, but it was, it was just too late. Hmm. Uh, as far as the package, uh, that's also what seems to add a, a very bizarre sidebar to this whole story, uh, especially if it is some sort of family scenario, which, again, we don't know at this point. Um, why are they so quick to relate the two? Is there anything you can tell us about how they would string these two together, these two incidents? That's a tough one, because what I have at this point is not confirmed. It's only rumors, mm-hmm. um, as a link as to someone who lived in the building. Um, and beyond that, again, police are not saying anything. They won't even confirm if in the end there was anything dangerous in the so-called suspicious package or what they were looking for or precisely where it was left, uh, anything like that. And so this and this was quite about it. And this was in a condo building, was it not, Christina? Yeah, a very tall tower right on Queen's Quay, right downtown, a very busy place, lots of people around. Uh, again, though, other than saying the two are connected, they're not revealing any details. Um, as you mentioned, it seems relatively easy to get a crossbow. I think the only real restriction is that uh, you have to be 18 years of age. Has there been any chatter as to whether those rules should be changed? You know, it's still so early. We don't know the circumstances. We don't know uh, the accused, the suspect's background, anything like that. So at this point, you know, it's still so early. And I, to be honest, have been in court all day waiting for his appearance. Mm. Uh, So unable to sort of really get a sense of what was happening outside of that. Um, Certainly here at court, of course, that was uh, the brief appearance was what everyone was waiting for. And it was extremely crowded uh, as people waited uh, for Brett Ryan to come in. Did it appear that he had any family there? 
It didn't appear so. I mean, again, it's hard to say with 100% certainty. They appeared to be pretty much entirely media, um, possibly a couple of onlookers, and then uh, people related to other cases. It certainly did not seem uh, that there was any family there. Certainly there was no one else that came up to his lawyer, after to consult with his lawyer, anything like that. So it does not look like there was uh, any supporters there. Have police given you any sort of timeline when they will be able to tell you more? Anything about a press conference? At this point, no. Uh, the police chief uh, did this morning address it at an unrelated press conference, pretty much just reassuring people, though, that, you know, the general public has nothing to worry about, uh, that they believe that they have uh, the suspect, that, you know, there was no one outstanding, that people don't have to worry about someone out there, you know, randomly shooting at people with a crossbow, that kind of thing. Other than that, you know, they're not saying very much. And, and that's very typical. It's very early from a police point of view. I mean, to us, it's been happening since yesterday afternoon. From the police point of view, it is so early in the investigation. And there are three victims. You know, there's so much for them to go mm. over uh, that they are, until they know things for certain, they're always very, very tight-lipped in these kinds of circumstances. And also, of course, not wanting to ever do anything that could possibly jeopardize a trial in the future. Uh, Christina, is there anything you can tell us about the person that has been charged? Uh, history, that sort of thing? Actually, he has a very interesting history. Um, sadly, he's engaged and was supposed to uh, be married shortly. And as far as his history, he has a criminal record. He was convicted in a really bizarre case where a man who police dubbed the fake bearded bandit robbed a number of banks. That was back in 2007, 2008. Uh, the man would hold up notes to tellers while sporting a fake beard and a bit more of a disguise, and, and he was convicted in a number of those cases. Uh, so we do know that. Uh, beyond that, we don't know a ton about him at this point. Uh, Christina Stevens has been with us, senior reporter for Global News. Of course, make sure you're watching Global News tonight at 5.30 and 6 and see Christina and the latest uh, coming out of this case. Christina, thank you very much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Thanks, Scott. Bye. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. I was kind of surprised. I heard about this the other day, and um, I just didn't expect to hear this when you hear so much about Uber and how great it is and how well it's doing uh, to the point where it's, it's certainly putting the traditional taxi cab business on its rear end. So when it was revealed the other day that they're losing money, how can this happen? How can this company be losing money when this seems to be the next big thing? Uh, Uber Technologies, the ride-hailing company, has lost at least $1.2 billion in the first half of 2016. What does that all mean? To talk more about this, Dr. Mike Moffat is with us, Assistant Professor, Business Economics and Public Policy Group, Ivy Business School, Western University, and is on the line with us now. Hello, Mike. How are you today? I'm doing well. How are you? Good. Thanks for taking the time to join us. We appreciate this. Uh, I'm kind of surprised to hear that Uber's not doing well. What's going on? Well, it's it's a bit of a deliberate uh, strategy by Uber. So what they're they're trying to do here is uh, keep their prices really low and uh, subsidize their drivers to try and attract drivers away from Lyft and other competitors uh, in order to grow this market and to dominate this market. The idea being that once they have sort of a stranglehold on the market, then they can start to raise prices. So uh, at the end of the day, is this about... Uh, the driver's fees? Is this about they want more money from the actual transaction? Yeah, so that's largely what's going on here, that uh, Uber's providing fairly uh, generous uh, subsidies and bonuses uh, to drivers to try and get more and more of them, again, driving for Uber. And in fact, in many cases, they're trying to lure away uh, drivers from the taxi industry. So so that's really what this is about here. It's it's about trying to uh, create a market, uh, create market power, and then once you do that, then they'll start to, mm. uh, you know, rein, in, rein that in a little bit. Uh, that being said, $1.2 billion in, in the first half of the year, that, those seem like awfully big numbers. Yeah, and this is really uh, Uber playing a game of chicken, uh, because they're losing about $200 million a month, uh, again, trying to... Uh, dominate this market. So the question becomes, okay, what's going to happen first? Is, are they going to be successful and be able to take over this market, or are they eventually just going to lose money? Right now, a variety of uh, investors are willing uh, to put up that money because they think in the long run um, this is a good bet. But you would have to think if these losses continue to pile up at some point, uh, 
you know, a variety of investors and financial institutions are going to step back and go, well, you know, we, we, we don't like where this is going. We really don't want any part of it. This whole business literally uh, turned this industry and, and lots of councils, uh, you know, uh, on their, well, it, it certainly shook them up because they didn't know how to react to this. They didn't know how to play the game. There were no rules. And this seemed like some sort of utopian business model where everyone was winning. Uh, is this model sustainable? At the end of the day, are, are we just going to have a glorified taxi service here as they try to balance their costs versus um, what they want to make? Yeah, I, I think they will eventually uh, figure this out. But, but you're right, they, the councils all over the place are, are struggling with this. I just uh, got back from Calgary a couple, a couple days ago where Uber is effectively banned mm -hmm. uh, from that city. Uh, because of uh, concerns uh, that, that taxi drivers in the taxi lobby have. But Uber's doing a lot of interesting things right now. So one of their models is they're operating in Pittsburgh, and they've got 100 driverless cars uh, that they're testing on the, on the roads of Pittsburgh. So, you know, very well that, you know, the long play 10, 15, 20 years from now might be, in fact, Ubers with, with no drivers at all. But let's be honest, legislation on driverless cars, that's still a ways away, don't you think, Mike? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, they have to sort of have a proof of concept. Uh, there's certainly uh, testing that's, that's going on in a variety of different places, including uh, here in Stratford, Ontario. Um, and even this, this model in, in Pittsburgh, uh, there, there's still somebody uh, sort of behind the wheel to take over, you know, just in case uh, something happens. Mm -hmm. So... You know, the fully autonomous cars are, are probably, you know, probably a decade or two away, but uh, Uber and other companies are trying to uh, push that as, as close to the future as possible. Uh, when this all started, this whole movement started, it, it, you can't stop Uber. You know, it's easier to uh, beg forgiveness than it is to ask permission. It's just going to drive its way through. But clearly, there, you know, it, it's not as rosy as everybody thinks. Is this model bulletproof? I, I don't think it is. And, and uh, part of why it's not bulletproof is because it requires, um, it, it requires government uh, regulation, that uh, you know, governments uh, can basically just wipe this away at the stroke of a pen, like, like Calgary has and, and so many others. So you know, Uber has all kinds of risks. Uh, first of all, they just have general market risk that uh, you know, customers might just decide that they prefer traditional taxis or one of Uber's competitors. But there's also all kinds of regulatory risk that uh, if something happens uh, here or, or governments just decide that, uh, you know, this is taking too many jobs away from the traditional taxi industry, you know, governments, uh, particularly municipal ones, can just regulate them out of existence. Well, and as you mentioned, things like insurance fees, license fees in the place where it is legal – um, is this still an attractive scenario for people? I mean, at the beginning of all of this, it was, wow, they're going to pay me this much just to drive somebody around. That's unbelievable. Well, you add in all of those fees, the licensing, and then Uber talking about reducing the, the, the amount that each driver receives. Where's the fun? Yeah, exactly. So, and, and that's another issue here. The, the government doesn't even necessarily have to regulate them directly out of existence. They can kind of do it indirectly uh, through requiring anything from you know variety of insurance to fees to onboard uh, cameras uh, to uh, equipment to to make sure that uh, the disabled can get in and out of, out of the vehicle. So that's the real challenge that Uber has. That uh, you know, government regulation is. is imposing all of these additional costs on Uber, uh, while at the same time Uber really needs to lower the, those fees that they pay drivers in, in order to make the, the, the economics of the model work. So they're really getting uh, hit with both sides. Uh, they're seeing increasing costs, uh, but they're not able to push those costs uh, onto consumers or, or onto their drivers. Plus, they're always selling this like a high-end ride, you know. I mean, it's a nice car. It's, you know, even though they perhaps, at the beginning anyway, didn't maybe have the safety checks and everything that was supposed to be in place, the attractiveness to the consumer was it's a better ride. It's less BS. It's easier to get, you know, it's easier to engage. It's easier to make happen. Uh, once you start incurring more costs as a driver and the fee starts going down, we're going to lose that high-end ride, aren't we? Yeah, absolutely, and that's, that's, that's a big risk uh, that, that Uber has here, that the only 
uh, people that could uh, afford uh, to make this work, or the only way you can make it work is by having sort of really uh, low-end cars and poor services uh, simply because you're, you're trying to compete on cost. So, so absolutely, Uber needs to figure out a way to, uh, you know, square that circle, you know, make sure that it can charge its customers enough to cover all of these costs put on by government. And, you know, so far they haven't been able to do it. Again, that's why they're losing $200 million a month. But uh, so far investors are still willing to give this company money. They've raised about $64 billion uh, over the last few years, and there doesn't seem to be any uh, signs of this slowing down. Well, we see Uber sub-companies forming, and by that I mean drivers will say, you know what, I need to get three or four cars, I need to get three or four drivers going, uh, and sort of create their own little sub-industry within Uber. I mean, is that the way to make it more economically viable? Yeah, and, and we very well may see that happen, and I think that has happened uh, in, in some places, uh, simply just for reasons of economies of scale, that, uh, you know, you can make the numbers work a little bit better if you, uh, if you have a larger fleet and, and more drivers. And I, I think that's the interesting thing about the, this Uber model is it probably will uh, continue to evolve over the next two or three or four years. So, again, you know, they're, they're doing the driverless car test in, in Pittsburgh, but this is a, a company that's shown a willingness to sort of alter and, and change their business model and, and try and innovate. So, very well, they might uh, try some, some different models, again, in, or, in order to make the economics work. Do you think cab companies will just out-Uber Uber and just modernize and, and do the things that, that uh, p- consumers say that cabs aren't doing and virtually just move Uber out of the, out of the industry? Yeah, we're, we're already seeing that. Uh, we're, we're seeing a number of uh, taxi companies uh, come out with their own apps. So if you, you want a, a particular cab, you can, you can have an app for that. Uh, you know, we're seeing companies do things uh, like uh, driver ratings uh, for taxis. So we're seeing traditional taxis move, move into that space. And that's very well where, where this may be going, that, uh, you know, the taxi industry is going to become a little bit more like Uber. And frankly, Uber might uh, become more, more like, like the, the taxi, taxi industry. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, exactly. That I, I think there, there is that sharing of best practices. And, you know, as, as I'm, you know, I tend to be more on the side of the traditional taxi. I'm not uh, much of an uh, Uber user, but I will say that I like the fact that, that Uber has made the taxi industry raise their game. I think mm-hmm. that's fantastic. How long do they have before they run out of cake? How long before they run out of dough uh, or, or make a drastic change in their model? Yeah, well, it, it looks like they're going to be able to do this for a very long time. So, yeah, you know, $200 million a month uh, is a lot of money, $2.5 billion a year. But this is a company that's raised $64 billion. So, in theory, uh, they could do this, you know, for... Uh, significant period of time. You, the, the question is more: Okay, well, at what point do investors, uh, you know, the shareholders of this company, start uh, yelling at management, going, "Okay, guys, this, this simply isn't sustainable." Uh, you know, we we want a change of leadership. So I think that's what would probably uh, happen first. But I, I do think they have some time, and, and there are some models like this. Uh, Amazon dot com, for instance, you know, consistently lost money for about thirteen or fourteen years. Is just now finally profitable. Um, but that was a similar idea that Amazon didn't mind continually losing money month after month after month because they were trying to build up market share to a point at which they'll be profitable. And that's really, the, you know, Uber seems to have taken a page out of the Amazon playbook and is, is trying to replicate that. Is the honeymoon over for Uber? I, I think the shine has come off a little bit. Uh, I, I think people are, you know, tried it. Um, and you know had uh, mixed uh, mixed experiences and, and as well that uh, we're seeing governments like the government in Calgary who are willing to crack down on this so they it does feel like they're at a tipping point a little bit and Uber needs to figure out how to uh uh you know h- how to make the economics of this work how to make the model work or you know they might be the next sort of web van or any of these sort of dot com uh companies that uh you know, came out with big promising business models, but just couldn't make the numbers work. Well, at the end of the day, uh, how do they keep the customers happy and the drivers happy? Well, well, exactly, because it, the, those two things are diametrically opposed. Because mm-hmm. uh, you know, the the customers want low prices, and the uh, the, the drivers uh, want high fees. So, and, and obviously, Uber wants to to make money, or at least not be uh, subsidizing losses. So, it's tough to see how you can do all things uh, th- three things at once. Right. You basically, you know, both simultaneously have to keep prices high and keep them low. And without an abundance of drivers, this thing really starts to come apart at the seams, doesn't it? 
Yeah, absolutely. So, so they need to keep prices high enough uh, to to keep those drivers, and and particularly, you know, we've we've seen people go, you know, try be Uber drivers for a few months and decide it's not for them. So, you know, the pool of potential drivers is not unlimited. So they very well could run out again if they can't make this business model work. It's like anything, you know, uh, it's a great business opportunity until we examine the regulations, the rules, the fees, the insurance, the licensing, that sort of thing. Um, it's almost like ripping off satellite uh, signals in the old days with a great big giant satellite dish um, it's it's attractive until people realize what the cost is and and, and once it is uh, legitimized uh, legitimized how much it does finally cost the company and the customers to use it yeah absolutely it's one of the things that I, I teach at Ivy in my course about international trade that uh so it's important that uh, companies get the market fundamentals right. You know, they understand uh, their customers, you know, understand, you know, product differentiation and that sort of thing. But also recognize that you live in a regulatory environment uh, and, and governments can change the rules uh, at, at the stroke of a pen. And you need to be sort of aware of that and you need to be managing that, that process because... Uh, there are so, you know, governments aren't going to stop making rules. You know, no. there's going to constantly be new laws, new regulations. And, and if you're not on top of that as a company, you know, you can see your whole business model be, be written away at a stroke of a pen. And if you're making money, you're certainly going to draw attention to yourself, aren't you? Yeah, no, I, 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 absolutely. Absolutely. That, uh, you know, if you're if you're making money, you're out there, you're being really competitive, you're, you're probably making some enemies, and that's going to get noticed. Have they succeeded just because they are playing in the gray area? And then once that gray area becomes a little bit more clear, it's not as nice as everybody thought it was. Yeah, exactly. And, that, and that's the other risk uh, that, that Uber has, because we, t- we, we t- sort of talk about this sort of regulatory risk, and they could be regulated away to the stroke of a pen. But the other thing could happen as well, that governments might decide, you know what, this business model is okay, um, and that sort of allows other companies to get into this space who, who really might not want it to to been there because they don't, they don't want to deal with that regulatory risk. So all of a sudden, if governments decided, hey, actually, this is a fine thing and we'll, we'll let anybody play in this space, well, that opens up the doors to the Googles, the Apples, you know, and even your traditional car companies uh, could get into the space. So, so Uber has actually done well by the fact that this is kind of gray, and the fact that it is gray is uh, keeping out competition. Do you think that uh, it will? Do you think we'll look back at this in in your business class ten years from now and say this is why it succeeded, this is why it failed, and 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 the gray area being a big part of that? Yeah, no, no, absolutely. Um, you know, and we've uh, we've seen these uh, things before. So if you go back, uh, you know, twenty five, thirty years ago, it was. You know, it wasn't uh, quite clear if things like video rentals uh, were even legal. Mm. And, uh, you know, movie studios were kind of arguing that, no, no, this is, uh, you know, this is our intellectual property and we were never uh, intended to use it that way. And, And companies that were, you know, like Blockbuster, who were willing to sort of navigate that gray area, did well for a while. So... Uh, you know, and that's, uh, you know, traditionally taught in business schools. So I, I think this will be as well that, uh, you know, looking at these lessons of, okay, how as a company do you deal with, uh, you know, sort of gray market area where it's not completely illegal, but it's not completely legal either. What are investors seeing in this? Like, like I'm seeing doors close, not doors open. Um, and I guess the whole driverless car thing might just be the next gray area in which for them to invest in. Um, but, but, but at the end of the day, what are investors seeing in the future of this? Because I'm seeing more regulation and, and the model shrinking. Yeah, so I think what uh, investors are hoping, you know, the sort of prime case for, for Uber is that it becomes sort of legal enough and that, that Uber can just kind of play the long game here and eventually just dominate the, this space, uh, you know, just have not necessarily a monopoly, but something close to it and, and achieve monopoly profits. I think part of it as well is these days there's not a lot of good things to invest in anymore. You know, bonds are, are paying uh, close to zero. Uh, you know, the, the commodities aren't, aren't doing well. So I, I think international investors are just looking for anywhere to, uh, to park their money. And it, this, at least in theory, has some upside. So I think that's why they're continually uh, being able to attract capital. It's just that you know, it's not that this is necessarily a great investment. But if you look at uh, you know you know you look at other potential investments, it, it doesn't look too bad. It's almost as if we're between two places. We're not there yet. 
Yeah, no, no, absolutely, uh, absolutely. And again, this is this is some, something that could go sort of either way. And uh, there's enough uh, money sort of sloshing around uh, international capital markets that uh, you know these people are willing to make a bet. Um, you know, and to be frank, this is not a bet that uh, I would make. But uh, you know, there there are people who are, are looking for that upside, and they think they found it in Uber. Dr. Mike Moffat has been with us, Assistant Professor of Business Economics and Public Policy Group, Ivy Business School, Western University. Mike, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Oh, thank you for having me. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. All right, very, very quietly, uh, Stephen Harper has walked off into the sunset, uh, or at least into the afternoon sunshine. Uh, former Prime Minister Stephen Harper resigned today. He is taking on a new role as consultant on international issues. To talk more about all of this, Nelson Wiseman is with us, Professor of Political Science at the University of Toronto, and he is with us now. Hello, Nelson. How are you today? I'm fine, thank you. Thanks for taking the time to join us. How do you think Stephen Harper is going to be remembered as Prime Minister? You know, it depends who's doing the remembering. <laughs> all right, let's tackle both sides. Well, uh, those who uh, rejected the government uh, uh, don't have positive images of what he did. Uh, in fact, there was a lot of animosity toward him. He'll be remembered, on, mind you, on both sides as being a fairly controlling figure, a very smart figure. Um, on the conservative side, people will remember him and be grateful to him for having united the right. That was, I think, his major accomplishment. Uh, good point. Uh, it was uh, very much severed as he took control. What did he do to bring them together? Uh, what did he do? I think it was more, uh, you know, that's a good question. I'm not sure it was so much from his side. I think it was more Peter McKay undoing the old Conservative Party and it becoming apparent to um well, maybe maybe he promised McKay uh, uh, certain things. I mean, McKay did become a senior minister. Uh, he also promised that in the new party, rather than uh, there being equality among members, there would be equality among constituencies, and that was very important for the old PC Progressive Conservative Party. And what I mean by that is under the Reform Party and the Canadian Alliance, which Harper took over, um, when you had a convention uh, to decide anything, um, you had every member had a vote, and all those votes were equal. Under the system they've adopted, no, not everyone's vote is equal because everyone gets to vote, but every constituency has the same number of votes or points. So that means a constituency with five members has just as much influence as a constituency with 500 members. Because at a convention, let's say each only has five votes, so that's that's a difference, and that seemed to be something that the old Conservative Party or McKay was very determined to get, and probably because he comes from Atlantic Canada, which is the smallest you know part mm -hmm. of Canada, which has only about six percent of the Canadian population. Uh, remembering back, not the last election, but the one prior to that when he, he won handedly, uh, it was about the economy, about his fiscal responsibility, um, and I guess security as well, with the fear factor and such. What changed? Well, uh, um, okay, you know, I'm a contrarian, so let's look about why he won. I'm not sure it was so much on their policies, although, although by reducing the GST, uh, people liked that. Although it was main, uh, I think the main uh, reduction was after they had their minority, but they didn't win a minority the second time. I think the reason they uh, were successful in 2008, which is or 2011 when they got their majority, is because they were the most effective in discrediting the Liberal Party and Michael Ignatieff. Mm. You know, they painted yeah. him as somebody that was just visiting. Yeah, they were in shambles at that point. And as it turns out, Ignatieff was just visiting. Hmm. You know, he's now uh, lives in Budapest and is president of a university there. And even before that, he he decamped and went back to Harvard. Mm -hmm. So uh, that's a, a thing the conservatives did that was very effective. And they did it by entering the era, introducing us to the era of the permanent election campaign. We'd been moving in that direction anyways. 
so that whenever anybody spoke in the House, a conservative, they spent all their time attacking the opposition parties rather than doing what governments normally do, which is to outline their own policies and defend them, defend their spending. And the conservatives also had the most sophisticated um, voter data apparatus, if I can use that term, in terms of what... uh, uh, you know, they, they were the best at slicing and dicing psychographic and demographic data so that they had the best handle on uh, who would vote for whom. And they they exploited that, and they did it effectively. It didn't work as well in this last election, partly because after a while, a number of people just want to change. Well, yeah, I was just about to say that. Change was the big mantra of the last election. What did people, is it just that any government that, that lasts that long runs its course? What is it that people wanted changed? I mean, certainly the attitude changed. It's a lot more happier place and, and, and more sunshine than cloud, that's for sure. Yeah, well, it's still less than a year since the Liberals got elected. Remember, I would say that eight, ten months after the Harper government came in in 2006, they were still quite popular. Mm -hmm. So I think there was a sense that he was uh, too controlling, and there were a number of things which turned off a number of various um, groups, highest groups in society. Um, His crime and punishment agenda did not sit well with a lot of people. Aboriginal communities didn't warm up to the Harper agenda. Veterans, who uh, the Conservatives are big on celebrating, actually became a major foe of the Conservative government. And so, all you know, factors like that, they, they add up. Then you've got the, the change factor. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, um, you know, and there are a few scandals thrown here, to sp- here and there to spice things up. Um, and As you look back at that last election, how much did the whole Duffy case play into that, do you think? How how much how much did that determine results? I don't think it determined much, quite mm-hmm. frankly, and I'll tell you why. I followed the polls quite closely, and it had a huge effect. Uh, the first week, you know, as the trial was beginning, or the, the, when it really splashed, which is about a month into the campaign, and then I noticed the numbers just went back to where they sort of had been. The, the point is the Conservatives were around 30% going into the campaign, and they came out of the campaign at 30%. With the Duffy thing, they dropped to 25, 26. I saw one poll, if I recall, they were third. But then they came back up to 30. So it's not as if um, uh, the Duffy thing dropped them during the campaign. I think it did contribute to dropping them before the campaign. And by the time the election uh, day, voting day was on, a lot of people, you know, it was already baked into the numbers. And the Conservatives knew that they were going to lose. And, you know, they knew it was a change election. And it usually is after a few terms. Uh, how do Conservatives move forward? How, you know, especially when they're looking for a new leader at this point, uh, how, do they, how do they pick a leader that will run well against Trudeau? Well, that's for them to decide, uh, and and the aspiring leadership candidates all have their own ideas. I think a key to them being successful, but I don't see it discussed much in the Anglo press, is them having a leader from Quebec. Quebec makes up almost a quarter of the seats in the House of Commons, and mm-hmm. one of the things we've learned is that it's the most volatile region in terms of voting behavior, and it'll often vote you know, almost like a block. I mean, the Liberals came from nowhere to win 40 seats. Uh, the election before that, the NDP came from even less than nowhere and won 59 seats. And uh, in 1993, the Bloc Québécois came from absolutely nowhere and became the official opposition. So whereas when you get to province like Ontario, you know, I, I can sort of predict how the GTA is going to vote as opposed to rural, eastern, and western Ontario. And it doesn't matter who's in power. How do you think Stephen Harper is feeling today? Uh, what will? What, what do you think he thinks his legacy will be? What do you think he thinks people will remember him for? Mm, I don't know. But I, I, I do want to say something about his leaving, his resigning, and how this fits into his 
fits and doesn't fit into historical pattern. I mean, Go ahead. It's no, it's no surprise that he's stepping down because uh, that's what's developed in elections recently. So, you know, when Martin lost, they may hang around for a little while and then leave. Same with Mike Harris. Well, what's, le- what's left for them to do now once they've had the big chair? Well, let's think back on some of our prime ministers. Arthur Meehan hung around. He was defeated and then came back and became prime minister. Mackenzie hmm. uh, King was defeated in 1930 after being in power for nine years, as long as Harper was. And in 1935, he was reelected and then stayed on for another 13 years. John Diefenbaker was defeated, yeah. and he hung on for a number of years. And and he only and, and even after he had lost the leadership of his party, still hung in as an MP. Pierre Trudeau, yeah. uh, uh, his government was defeated, and he said he was resigning. But he ended up hanging in, and then all of a sudden he was the prime minister and introduced the charter. So that's been a change that we've seen. And so there's something about the fact that it doesn't sit comfortable with me when somebody says, even if they're the prime minister, who's running in a constituency to get a four-year mandate, and then because their party loses, they've won, Mm -hmm. they resign. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I thought... uh, the best thing that happened for Michael Ignatieff, which saved his face uh, somewhat, is that it got beaten in his own constituency. Yeah. So he didn't have to resign. Uh, Trudeau's MPs recently, some are in hot water over overspending. Uh, is this the beginning of the end of the honeymoon, or is this just typical of any government that wades in and gets itself into trouble eventually? I think the honeymoon's still on. I think things will change when... You start pinning more things on Trudeau himself. Or, you know, apparently there's an announcement today they're going to send more troops overseas. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm not sure it's going to be troops. Well, it's peacekeeping. Yeah, so I think you're going to have a lot of uh, civilian personnel. But um, if if you start having deaths and it's not clear what that's accomplishing, um, that could hurt uh, their image. I think it hurt uh, the uh, the conservatives if 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 what you're sending personnel over for, nothing really seems to move forward. Uh, is this is the, is this whole peacekeeping thing, 600 troops or, or, or personnel, or personnel whatever which way you want to slice it, uh, is this about image, is this about politics, or is this about helping? Uh, it's, well, it's about all three. Politics and image go together. Uh, helping, I don't know. Canada does have capacities. Uh, technical capacities that a lot of other um, countries that are involved in UN operations don't have. Uh, Logistics, communications, intelligence, engineering, you know, the Bangladeshis aren't at that level. They're involved in peacekeeping because it's a way for their soldiers to get paid by the United Nations. Hmm. For Canada, you know, we don't need the money from the United Nations. In fact, we pay more. uh, so, uh, you know, you can try to help, and they will try to help, but uh, you're in situations where your force isn't that large. It's really foreign. You're in a culture that's alien to you, and it's not really peacekeeping. I mean, the Canadians like the term, but the, what the term was meant to mean and what it did mean when it was essentially introduced in the 50s by Canada is that you had a force that was stationed between two combating forces that had agreed on a truce or a ceasefire, and your force, the the force you inserted, the Canadian peacekeepers, were simply observers, you know, reporting on whether there had been violations, monitoring what was going on. That isn't what is going on now. In, In what country in the world do we have that situation? Does this resonate with Canadians? Uh, do Canadians love the, the, the term peacekeepers? You know, we'd rather be lovers, not fighters. Or, or would Canadians rather have uh, their military concentrating on things like terrorism rather than peacekeeping in scenarios which seem irrelevant to Canadians at this point? Well, I don't know if it's either or, but when you talk about do Canadians want to... Um, 
our troops involved in terrorism, I don't think there's much appetite to send Canadian troops. To Do Canadians to think we have a choice? Uh, well, mm. I mean, you know, at the end of the day, you know, sometimes war just falls in your lap. It's not like you're going out looking for it. Well, that's true. Uh, but uh, we're not at war. I mean, f- war, you know, it's the, the the war in Afghanistan, did it fall into our lap? Or Iraq, uh, it only in the sense that in, in, in Afghanistan we were part of NATO, and NATO decided to act. In Iraq, we weren't party to, uh, to it, although Canada did provide some support in terms of naval vessels. Um, you know what's going on right now in Syria. Canada isn't so that hasn't really fallen into our lap. It's fallen into the world's lap, and Canada is a member of the international community. Well, indirectly, yeah, yeah. right. So I mean, it's it's still our issue, still our problem, still something yeah. we as 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 a community member of the world have to deal with. Yeah, but I, I would say this. That's a good point, Scott. But Canadians don't vote on the basis of foreign or defense policy. When surveys are done about, you know, what's important, you know, in this election, you know, they might mention the environment or health care, education, the economy, unemployment, the deficit. They don't mention foreign policy. And and I know during the last election, Ipsos Reid published a, a poll of, you know, what issues were driving Canadians. And because I was going to be speaking on a forum with, uh, for students about foreign policy and the Canadian election, I got in touch with uh, Ips, uh, uh, Ipsos Reid, and I said, um, um, well, or it may have been the Angus Reid Institute, I don't remember, but I said, um, look, uh, you didn't list any issues uh, that fewer than 5% had mentioned. Who, did anybody, you know, how many people mentioned foreign policy? And the vice president wrote me back and said, nobody. Hmm. Well, I find that revealing. So I think Canadians have feelings about international issues, very much so. But I don't think it drives their um, political decision. Like you mentioned the Duffy affair. Well, I think that was infinitely more important hmm. than, you know, Canada deciding to pull its troops out of Afghanistan. Nelson Wiseman's been with us, professor of political science, University of Toronto. Former Prime Minister Stephen Harper resigned today, taking on a new role as consultant on international issues. And how will you remember him? Nelson, thanks very much for the time. Much appreciated. Thank you. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.